Uh-oh. Let's see what happens if I do it from here. All right. Hey, if you don't mind taking your seat. And I want to invite anybody sitting on the bleachers back there to come fill in some gaps up front if you, uh, if you wouldn't mind moving forward a little bit. Some of you, I know you're, now you're thinking, oh, what do we do? Do we have to do that or do we, but we have some, we pulled out extra rows for everybody for Easter morning. So we want to invite some of you to come up and uh, get in on the action with us. We have a few people still caffeinating, which is totally great. Is there enough coffee for everyone? I hope. All right. Cool. Well, I'm going to pray, and we'll jump in. Jesus, wow. Our hearts and minds don't have categories for things like crucifixion and resurrection. It's, it's something that is at once cliche and familiar, and yet rich and awe-inspiring. Because we hear about it so often, yet we've never experienced it ourselves. So this morning, would you make something that was very real to you, real to us? Would you help it to go beyond just something that we wear in the shape of a cross around our necks or something we celebrate with little eggs, as good as that is, but help us to really grapple with the reality of what it means that you conquered the grave, that you met death in its very depths and that death could not hold you. Oh my gosh, what does that mean? Would you explode, or if not explode, would you expand our hearts with the weight of what that means this morning? Holy Spirit, come and do your work in our hearts to see the gravity of Jesus rising from the grave. Amen. I want to invite those of you that were waiting kindly for me to Finish praying, go ahead and feel free to, to find a seat. This is not going to be long, but I've been waiting for this all year. This is something that I am really, really excited to share about. Uh, for all our first-time visitors, my name is Chris, by the way, and um, I'm the community architect slash pastor here, and it's fun. If you can't tell already, we have a really cool group of people. If it's your first time here and you're, maybe this is the one time of the year that, that you decide to brave stepping into a church, that's totally fine. We're glad you chose us. And if you're trying to find a new church home, you'll know right away. Um, you'll know right away if we're home for you or not. So no pressure. We're just glad to have your smiling faces here. So Easter, what an amazing, amazing thing. We celebrate it with, we had a, an image up here a little while ago of some eggs and we get Easter baskets and all these different things. For me, for years, the highlight of Easter was this little foil wrapped thingamabob called a Cadbury cream egg. 
How many of you wait in deep anticipation for Cadbury cream eggs? That's, that's the highlight of Easter for you. Yeah, and that, then they've kind of, they've started expanding it out, right? Not just Cadbury cream eggs, but then Cadbury caramel eggs. And uh, what are the other, and then orange and cream? Have you seen that one? There's an orange and cream, but you can't beat the classic, can you? Let me see your hand if you really enjoy a Cadbury cream egg. Yeah. That, to me, was the, the climax, the epitome of Easter for years, because I didn't really know what to do with and how to even process something as profound as resurrection. We'll be having an Easter egg hunt for the kiddos a little bit later, and, and you guys are welcome to, I mean, I guess adults if you're fast enough. I don't know. I don't see why you can't participate, but uh, you'll have to be quick. But we'll be doing that after our worship session. But really, what is this day all about? Have you taken some time to really think this morning? Over the last few days, we, we've had Good Friday, which is, it's a wonder that we call it good. We know now why we call it good, but, oh man, we can't begin to fathom, can we, what that meant for Jesus on Good Friday. And then Holy Saturday, which for us is a day of great anticipation, but for the disciples was a day of despair and disillusionment and just their hearts, their dreams were wrecked, were shattered, and they saw no way forward. We get to look at the stories from the other end and look back and see what happened, but they did not know that. But it's been a, these three days, for those of us that follow Jesus, they are incomparable. And over the last few years, my mind has been changed, my heart has been opened, and my, yeah, my mind has been blown, really, by what the resurrection means. And I want to open up a little bit of that to you. And That's my baby, it's okay. <laughs> Even if it wasn't my baby, it'd still be okay. But it is my baby. What we'll do this morning is kind of take a quick, it'll almost be a theological Easter egg hunt of sorts. Through the Gospel of John, through John chapter 19, chapter 20, and 21. And what I want you to do, I'm going to ask you to do something. This, is, this reality was brought to my awareness through a man named N.T. Wright. And I'm very grateful because when I first heard this, my, literally, like it, it brought tears to my eyes and, and just so much light to my heart. And I want to walk you through some things in the story of the crucifixion and the resting and the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you to be listening as we highlight these things. Does it echo back to another story we know? Is there something John is trying to tell us that you might not get just looking at the story at face value that really holds together the real reality of resurrection? So you ready to release Drake Hunt with me? Yeah. All right. So in John chapter 19... We begin with Jesus at his trial, which is a really broken, screwed up, horrific thing. We have Jesus betrayed by Judas and then brought before the, I guess, before Pilate. And the chief priests are accusing him and Pilate wants nothing to do with it. He's like, I, I don't see any guilt in this man. But he knows he's in a tricky situation because he can't just leave it alone. And so he sends him off. He kind of passes the buck and sends Jesus off to Herod. And Herod mocks him a little bit, and Herod says, I see, this guy's just crazy, but there's nothing that he's done wrong. So Herod sends him back to Pilate, and again, Pilate's like, what do I do? And the Jews, the chief priests, are yelling, crucify him. We want him 
dead. They even say something as prophetic and profound as, may his blood be on us and on our children, if they only knew. And Caiaphas, speaking prophetically as well, he says, it is better that one man die for all, because he knew that Jesus was bringing about a revolution, and that if things continue to build, it would be bad for a lot of people, at least he thought it would be that way. And so Pilate decides, well, what I can do is I can take Jesus and I'll at least punish him really severely. So they take Jesus and they beat him, they whip him, they put the crown of thorns on his head. And Pilate brings him back out, bloodied, mocked, brings him back out, and and the passion of the Christ, and I always get it wrong exactly how it's said, but it's such a powerful moment. Pilate stands there and he pulls Jesus back over and he says, Ecce ama! Remember that? Behold the man. And John is trying to use Pilate to say something really profound here. Because John knew that Jesus was the one true human that was finally human in the way God fully intended. Behold the true human. And they take Jesus and they put him up on the cross. And after Jesus, his hands and his feet nailed to the cross, they take, well, there's a few beautiful moments in here, but he sees his mother and the beloved disciple and he says, hey, mother, this is your new son. And he says, brother, behold your mother. Take care of her. He's on the cross with blood dripping out of every fiber of his skin. And he's thinking about his mom. And then an echo back to last week. So what you missed last week, for those of you that weren't here, we had tables set up and it was family Sunday and it was just this chaotic, crazy, I don't even know what to call it, just this wild party of parfaits and granola and and fruit, and kids, and balloons, and beatings, and um, yeah, you should have been there, but it was, it was a little bit crazy, but what we were trying to do was we were trying to have communion, and one of the messages, the message I was trying to give that didn't really happen, um, yeah, that just totally got lost, didn't it, in the noise, and the, the excitement, and the chaos, but hey, we had other experiences in the midst of that, but it's so fascinating what Jesus says at the Last Supper, as he's handed these, he hands the disciples a glass of wine and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And then he says, but I will not drink of it again until I drink of it in the day that I come into my kingdom. He says, I'm not drinking wine again until I come into my kingdom. I wonder, because as Jesus is on the cross, it says that they take and they give him some sour wine. He calls out, I thirst. And they give him sour wine. And I wonder... Just maybe if that's connected to what Jesus said, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until I come into my kingdom. And then Jesus says these words as he's on the cross. He says, it is finished. So we have Pilate pointing out this one true human. And we have God in human form, on the cross saying, my work is finished. And they come to break the, uh, the robbers, those that are crucifying, the criminals. They, try to, they come to break their legs. Why? Why were they trying to get them to die sooner than 
Because the next day was the Sabbath, remember? Because the next day was the Sabbath, they decided that they didn't want to have to deal with these dead bodies and work on the Sabbath, ironically enough. Can you imagine? Is there any worse case of having missed the point than that? And so they go to break their legs and they find that Jesus is already dead. And so Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. He finishes his work. And then he rests in the grave on the Sabbath. It says, near the place where he was crucified, there was a garden with a newly prepared tomb. Because it was the day of preparation, they arranged to lay Jesus in his tomb so they and he could rest on the Sabbath. So we have a garden. We have a human. We have a man finishing his work. God finishing his work. Resting on the Sabbath. And then John tells us, in the beginning of chapter 20, he says it's a new day. He says it's the first day of the week. And he tells us that twice. Once at the beginning of the chapter and once in the middle. John doesn't repeat himself on accident. He repeats himself very intentionally. John wants you to know that there's something new going on here. And on this day of the week, this first day of the week, Mary, who would never have been a credible witness in their culture, Mary runs and she's the first one to go to the tomb and she finds what? That Jesus is still there? She finds that the stone has been rolled away and she freaks out and she panics and she runs and tells the disciples and then Peter and this other disciple come back and Peter runs inside and finds that somebody's been doing laundry. Have you read that? That everything's folded all nice and neat? Hmm. Jesus is so considerate <laughs> that after everything, he rises from the grave and he does laundry. Hmm. And so these angels appear to Mary as she sits outside the tomb weeping. These angels appear to her and they have the nerve to ask, Why are you crying? She's like, are you kidding me? Uh, why don't you think about that for a minute? And then someone else, this stranger, says, who are you looking for? Why are you crying? And Mary thinks he's what? It says she turned to leave and she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Had she spent a little bit of time with Jesus? Interesting that she didn't recognize him, huh? John gives us a sense that Jesus was the same Jesus with a new kind of physicality. Most of the resurrection stories, they have the disciples who spent intimate time with Jesus over years not recognizing him. There's something the same about him, but there's something profoundly different. And it says that Mary didn't recognize him. He says, dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. And Jesus does something very simple that changes her world. He simply says her name. Because you know that when you hear Jesus say your name, it changes everything, doesn't it? Jesus says her name, and all of a sudden, and I picture it, Jesus literally, she says, Rabboni, teacher, rabbi. And she, I picture her running and like jumping into his arms because his response is, don't hold on to me. 
It's like she's like, just kind of clinging on, like, you're alive. And he says, don't hold on to me, but go and tell Peter and the rest of the disciples what has happened. And so she does, and they believe him. Now, it gets better. So the disciples, there's all these rumors spreading that Jesus maybe has risen from the grave. And so obviously Pilate and the, yeah, the government is going to be quite worried that something's going on here. So what do the disciples do in their boldness? They go and lock themselves away in a room because they know that what happened to Jesus could very likely happen to them. And so they lock themselves away in a room. The door is locked, and in the middle of the room appears Jesus. And he says to them, Peace be with you. And it says that he showed them his hands and his side. Now, in English, our word peace is kind of weak, isn't it? For us, peace just means lack of conflict. But the Hebrew word shalom is so much richer, isn't it? It carries undertones of things like nothing is missing. Or another way you could say it is everything has been made right. And Jesus appears to them through the door and he says, Shalom. Nothing is missing, ironically, as he has holes in his hands. Everything has been made right. And a little while later, he does the same thing after Thomas, who said, I, don't, I won't believe it till I see it. And Thomas actually puts his fingers through the holes in Jesus' hand. And he says, my Lord and my God, welling up with emotion and reality and revelation. Isn't it beautiful how Jesus has so much compassion and patience with us in our doubt? If I was Jesus, I would have been like, sorry, Thomas, snooze you lose. I'm going to go to Mary because she really cares about this and she, she's on board. But even in the midst of Thomas's deepest doubt, Jesus has the patience and compassion to meet him in that state. Put your hands, put your fingers through these holes in my hands, in my wrists. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And now I don't know what his breath would have smelled like after three days or I guess the time in the grave but I would imagine it's new resurrection breath but think about how awkward this could have been but wasn't it says then he breathed on them and he said receive the Holy Spirit in other words I am not leaving you alone he breathes on them are you starting to see some of the dots connected are you starting to grab some of the easter eggs that John is laying out for us Benjamin sees it. Hold on. You can't see that yet. So what do we have? We have this human that is God finishing his work in a garden or being resting in a garden. And then going to these others and saying, peace, everything has been made right. And breathing on these humans and commissioning them. Remember what Jesus told Peter? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep, tend to my lambs. I'm giving you something to do. What story 
is this reminding you of? What is John trying to draw our minds back to? Any ideas? What Easter eggs are you guys finding? You can tell me. I'm, this isn't a rhetorical question. This smells like Eden, doesn't it? This smells like Genesis. This smells like creation. The same John that in the beginning of his gospel he said, in the beginning was the word. He really likes Genesis. And he seemed to think that in Jesus a new Genesis was happening. He's the one that said, in him, well he actually said, in him, for him, and through him, all things were made. Nothing was made through Jesus. Nothing wasn't made through Jesus, actually. Now think about this for a minute. I love how N.T. Wright says it. John wants us to see, in John chapter 1 and chapter 20, that the word through whom all things were made has become the word through whom all things are remade. That in Jesus we have creation 2.0. When we think of the idea of new creation, we think of us as individuals, right? How many of you heard people say or people t teach about, talk about, you're a new creature in Christ, you're a new creation in Christ? We've all heard that, right? But John is saying there's something so much bigger going on. This isn't just about you as an individual. This is about everything being made new. This is so big that this is everything being made new through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. John says, if you could only see what's going on here. I remember the first time, I actually think it was the only time because I haven't had the courage to watch it again, but I, I remember seeing the Passion of the Christ in theaters and just being a broken, emotional mess for quite a while after. But I remember doing something so seemingly trivial as going to the grocery store later that afternoon. And I'm sitting there looking at the cashier and I could not not see her through the eyes of what I had just witnessed and experienced through watching The Passion of the Christ. It was like I was overwhelmed with the reality that she was one of the people on the cross with Jesus. It was like The Passion of the Christ gave me new eyes to see what normally I never would have noticed. I think what John wants to do is give us eyes to see that there is a new world Jesus has made a reality. The problem isn't that Jesus hasn't done his work. The problem is that we don't see it. Isn't it true that often when we think about the gospel, it comes across as good advice? The gospel is good advice. If you do this, you can go to heaven. But is that what the gospel really is? The gospel is good what? Good news. News means something has happened. The gospel is Jesus is the king of the world. He is making all things new. And the advice that follows that is, now you have the opportunity to live in accordance with that new reality. The gospel is Jesus has done this, now your life gets to come in line with the reality of what he's done. 
as we realize what Jesus has done, it changes the way we spend. It changes the way we save. It changes the way we work. It changes the way we play. It changes everything. Because Jesus has taken something that was broken and He's made it right again. And He sends us out to participate in fulfilling that reality. Now one last thing and then I'll, we'll kind of land this. There's a tremendous difference between John 19, 20, and 21 and what Jesus has done and where the story goes and Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We have the same components. We have humans. We have a garden. We have a project that God wanted to start. We have something God is up to. But then Adam and Eve, what did they do? They allowed sin and death to come into the garden and God kicked them out of the garden so that they would not eat from what? From the tree of life. Because they were not the kind of people that could be trusted to eat from the tree of life. They would be stuck in their sin and shame and death. And yet in the book of Revelation, we find that something has been reinstated. That something is there again for us to access. And it says that there's a river flowing out from the throne of God. And somehow on both sides of the river, there's what? There's a tree. There's a tree of life. In the old creation, God had to remove us from the garden because we were not the kind of people that could eat from the tree of life and have it give us life because all we knew was death. Yet in Jesus, we can eat freely from the tree of life because death no longer has a hold on us. As N.T. Wright says, in Jesus, death has lost its icy grip on the world. And now God's project of making God's dreams a reality have come back on track. That is the gospel that God has not given up on the world. That Jesus has come to make all things new. And yes, that has implications for me and for you and our church and everything. But sometimes we lose the big picture in light of the beautiful yet overly individualized news that Jesus died for you. Yes, He died for you. Because you are part of everything. I love having the kids in here. I absolutely love it. I guess I, I leave you with a question as we, as we move into worship. What would change for you and what would change for the church and what would change for the world if we lived with eyes open to the reality of what John is trying to get us to see? If we realize that in Jesus, He has done the heavy lifting, that the world has been made new, that we have been made new, that the old is gone, that the new has come, that we no longer have to fear death. Have you ever found that something's easier the second time you do it than the first? Isn't that true for pretty much everything? Well, you know what that means? You don't have to fear death because you've already done it once. That's one of the things this means. And if you think I'm crazy... See, we took the Easter egg hunt route to see John say, new creation, new creation, new creation. Jesus has made all things new. Paul doesn't do the Easter egg route. He's like, oh, here's my thesis. 
But Paul tells us the same thing, and this is where we're going to end, and then instead of analyzing, instead of responding, what we're going to do is we're just going to move into a time of worship and say, Jesus, help us to see with our eyes, see with our hearts the reality of what you've done, that you have made all things new and that I am included in that. And then that means there's hope for my relationships, there's hope for my finances, there's hope for my family, for my father, for my mother, for my sons, my daughters. There's hope for my kids that are growing up so entitled that I want to lose my mind sometimes. There's hope for everything because you have made all things new. Paul says, for the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way because there is a new life. There is a new reality. And he says, now this is the verse we often hear translated this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. That's not what it says. That's true, but that's a tiny piece of a bigger reality. It says, if anyone is in Christ, and is anyone in Christ? Yes. He says, if anyone is in Christ, guess what? There is new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Now we live in between the time of Jesus having started the project of making all things new and Jesus one day fulfilling it. Like he says in Revelation, behold, I am making all things new. We live in that interim time where we still have to have gluten-free diets and broken ankles and a little bit of pooch right here on our bellies sometimes, but broken relationships and, yeah, a bank account that isn't as full as we would want or emotional hurts and wounds, but Jesus has opened up the way, the opportunity for us to start experiencing this future now. And the role of following Jesus, the path of discipleship, is bringing into the present what Jesus has made true for our future experiencing a taste today of what will one day be fully true of all of us. That all things have been made right. It's easy for me to talk about this, but it's something that our hearts need to experience. And so what we're going to do is we're going to let the music do the heavy lifting of our morning. I'm going to pray for us. And what are we going to do? So we have, some, uh, we have a little table over there with some paper and some crayons. If any of you want to kind of kinesthetically and artistically engage in worship, we're going to invite you to spread around the room a little bit. You don't have to just stay planted where you are, but make yourself comfortable anywhere around the room. And we're just going to celebrate. Let the words of these songs bathe over you, wash over you, renew your heart, renew your mind. Bring our hearts and minds more into alignment with the reality of what Jesus has done. I invite you just to bathe in this, to celebrate this, to be caught up in this experience so that it's not just something we talk about, it's something we taste. It's not just something that we hear, it's something we experience. I want to invite you, if you have something that you want prayer for, as maybe I was describing, or maybe there's something that you feel God is saying, 
this is something I want to make new in your life. This is an area I want to touch. This is an area that I want to bring hope. If you want prayer from someone, I invite you throughout the worship time. Just go and connect and just ask someone to pray with you. We're not going to facilitate kind of a formal time. Just make yourself comfortable to go around and connect and just ask for prayer from someone. But the ultimate point, the ultimate reality is that Jesus says, I've done something really big. Really, really, really big. And if your heart could start to catch a glimpse of it, it would change everything. So will you see it? And will you join in? There's an invitation from the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus into new reality this morning. Jesus' words are beautiful, they're powerful, but sometimes they're just a sick joke in light of the reality of what you've done and who you are. And so, may the language of music, may the language of community, may the language of the Holy Spirit come and touch us, come and move us, come and animate us in a way